All right. Good morning. Thank you for the wonderful intro. And uh, if you just prepare by turning to Genesis chapter 46, we'll do some reading from there and get started. Genesis chapter 46, if you recall when we left off last week, um, the there was the great reveal, right? So now we see here, we're going to transition into a place that I find is really sweet in the scriptures. And uh, I'm going to start, I'm going to read verses one through seven, and then I'm going to skip down to verse 26. So when I jump, I'll let you know. And I'm reading from the English standard version of the Bible. Before I get started, let's pray. Lord, we bless you and thank you so much for the word of God. We thank you for this journey we're taking through uh, the book of Genesis. And we pray and ask this morning that you would bless this community. Uh, Presence yourself here powerfully through your Holy Spirit. We love you and we thank you in Christ's name. Amen. All right. Genesis 46, verse 1 says, So Israel took his journey with all that he had and came to Beersheba and offered sacrifices to the God of his father Isaac. And God spoke to Israel in visions of the night and said, Jacob, Jacob. And he said, Here I am. Then he said, I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for there I will make you into a great nation. Just a quick aside, this is something that we should all remember. This is something that was promised to Abram way back. We'll talk about that in a little bit. And God is just re-entering into Jacob's life and explaining the plan. Verse four, I myself will go down with you to Egypt and I will also bring you up again and Joseph's hand shall close your eyes. Then Jacob set out from Beersheba. The sons of Israel carried Jacob, their father, their little ones and their wives, In the wagons that Pharaoh had sent to carry him, they also took their livestock and their goods, which they had gained in the land of Canaan and came into Egypt, Jacob and all his offspring with him, his sons and his sons' sons with him, his daughters and his sons' daughters, all his offspring he brought with him into Egypt. And if you'll just skip down with me, please, to verse 26. All the persons belonging to Jacob who came into Egypt who were his own descendants, not including Jacob's son's wives, were 66 persons in all. And the sons of Joseph who were born to him in Egypt were two. All the persons of the house of Jacob who came into Egypt were 70. He had sent Judah ahead of him to show, or to Joseph to show the way before him in Goshen. And they came into the land of Goshen. Then Joseph prepared his chariot and went up to meet Israel, his father, in Goshen. He presented himself to him and fell on his neck and wept on his neck a good while. Israel said to Joseph, now let me die since I've seen your face and I know that you are still alive. This is the happy ending of the story. This is kind of where it all comes to a head. And finally, Joseph, Jacob are able to see each other in the flesh. And I like to think it probably would have been a tearful moment for all of us seeing something like this, kind of knowing what Joseph has been through all these years. 
It's uh, kind of sweet to see them reunited. So today we're just going to take a little bit of a survey through the New Testament. I like to present the story of Joseph in a slightly different way that perhaps you may have heard in the past. Uh, if you've been with us over the past five or so weeks, uh, Brett has brought us through all these chapters. There's a lot of content on Joseph and a lot has happened. And there's a lot of spiritual applications that have been made um, that uh, we can see God was definitely working in the life of Joseph. If you're my age, you've probably seen The Sixth Sense. It's an old film. The Sixth Sense is kind of a classic because it's one of those at the end you realize, wow, I can't believe this guy was really alive. Uh, the whole, uh, and and uh, going through this, and he was, um, excuse me, he was actually dead. And at the end of the story, you just sit there and you go, you got to be kidding me. I thought for sure this guy was gone. Um, but the, the funny thing is at the end of these types of stories when they create them is they keep you going through the whole film, right? And all along, in spite of the fact that I guess we see at the very beginning um, Bruce Willis's character is shot and killed, we actually believe that he was having a fight with his wife, his wife wasn't speaking to him or something like that. That was easier for us to process than to believe that he was actually dead. And so what I started looking at um, the life of Joseph many years ago, I started in a devotional kind of way. And as I started digging into it, there was a suggestion made that kind of caught my eye. When he's given his name in Genesis 41:45, Zephanath Paneah, in the margin of your Bible, it's probably going to say revealer of secrets, something like that. But it was mentioned in one of these commentaries that that could be translated savior of the world. And I started looking at that and thinking about this. And as I started uh, doing some research, this view is very ancient. It goes from antiquity to, to the medieval area era in, into the Protestant Reformation, John Calvin said in the person of Joseph, a lively image of Christ is presented. And so I started to see all these things that started to pop out. The Bible talks about Joseph pretty succinctly in the New Testament. We see he's, he is mentioned in the Hebrews Hall of Faith in Hebrews 11, 21 and 22. Uh, the writer says, by, by faith, Jacob, when dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph, bowing in worship over the head of his staff. By faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave directions concerning his bones. So they were going to go leave Egypt and bring those bones up to Canaan eventually. In Acts chapter 7, we see Stephen, before he was martyred, and in his speech, he talks a good amount about Joseph. And he talks about the patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt, but God was with him. And he goes through the story and, and shares with the people that were getting ready to stone him um, that Joseph's part of this whole uh, presentation of the gospel, the salvation story is critical and important. And as he was trying to present to them Christ, he goes way back and he goes through their history and he brings up Joseph and that pivotal role. 
we see that God's covenant with Abram that I mentioned briefly um, a second ago. Back in Genesis 15, 12 and 13, this was all part of the plan. Joseph's entry into Egypt and then this, all, the, all the things that we've read about to this point were all in the mind of God from time immemorial. It says in verse 13 of Genesis 15, Then the Lord said to Abram, for I Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possession. So we see this connection. It's all one story. It's cohesive, and it makes sense. From early part of Genesis all the way through the New Testament, we see what this story brings. And so what I'd like to present to you this morning is just some readings from the New Testament. We're going to talk about the life of Christ, the ministry of Christ, and then we're going to just talk about are there any corresponding things that we find from Joseph's life that make this picture of Jesus and Joseph sort of cohesive and relational. So I'm going to talk to you real quick about the type-anti-type relationship, and I'm sure you've heard this before, but in case you haven't, something that is a type in the Old Testament is something that foreshadows. The anti-type is the corresponding reality. Very simple, very straightforward, but when we look through the life of Joseph and we see the ministry of Jesus, it's just amazing, kind of like at the... It's that sixth sense moment at the end. You're like, wow, I never saw that before. I didn't put the connection together. And hopefully I'll be able to do that for you today. All right. So first of all, and hopefully you're going to see some bullets on the screen. We're going to see Matthew chapter 3, 17. Jesus is God's beloved son. Jesus is God's beloved son. In Matthew 3.17, it says, And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. And then in Matthew 17.5, He was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed him, them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Listen to Him. So we know that Jesus is the unique, beloved Son of God, but don't we find that early on in Joseph's story as well? We see early on that Jacob had this, he had a domestic imbalance in his family. And unfortunately, he, he gave Jake, uh, Joseph a little bit too much sunshine where it made his whole family jealous of him. To the point where he had presented him with this colorful tunic, and Joseph wore it, and it made his brothers extremely angry and bitter. And in a real family, of course, we know this doesn't work. It's a problem, right? And so, you know, we joke around, maybe we play with our kids and say things like, you're my favorite, but we all know they grow up and they think the youngest one's the favorite anyways, because that's just the way it works. And so, but with... With Jacob's family, this was real. Joseph was the first son of Jacob's 
favorite wife. And we all know that there was a lot of dysfunction in Jacob's family. A lot of wives, a lot of kids, a lot of not only infighting, but there was some serious sin that, that went on. And I think Jacob was not only pleased with Jake, uh, Joseph because he was the son of his old age, but he looked at him as sort of one of those that he could pass on the birthright and the blessing to. And this is what the, the brothers were really afraid of, is that he was going to be, that this coat was intended for further honors for him. So we see that uh, Jesus is the father's beloved son, and this shows up in Joseph's life. Secondly, Jesus does the will of the father. In John 4, 34, Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. He says in John 6, 38, for I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of the one who sent me. If we were following Christ in his time, this would have sounded pretty strange, I think. This is language that um, Jesus would often use and um, his followers loved him. He went through some real popularity and had some, some really uh, big crowds following him, but he attracted a lot of attention. And when these words were scrutinized, it got into him into a lot of trouble. And so Jesus does the will of the Father, and we see that Joseph was pretty much what we would say the good child. He was the obedient child. He was at Jacob's side all the time, and we assume to some degree that he was absorbing Jacob's teaching about God. And the reason why we can make that connection is because later in life, he seems to follow the Lord in ways that he could have only been taught. And so we see that uh, Jesus does the will of the Father. Joseph does the will of the Father. Thirdly, Jesus receives honor from the Father. In 2 Peter 1, 16 and 17, for we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty for when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And so the Mount of Transfiguration, at his baptism, we see uh, these unbelievable type of manifestations where God is absolutely putting his hand on Christ, blessing Christ, uh, ministering to Christ, different points of his life, there were angels ministering to him to strengthen him. And lo and behold, we see Joseph has a very similar type of a thing. His, his father, for some reason, presents him with this, with this coat that was both a blessing and a curse to him. Um, but it was a way for Jacob to show his love and affection, but he didn't show that to anybody else. So, unfortunately... Um, they all looked at that as, um, you know, from a human perspective, the honor that was poured upon Joseph was not welcome. And we see this with Christ. Christ is blessed with honor from the Father. Next, Jesus was hated by men. In John eight forty eight, the Jews answered him, 
Are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my father and you dishonor me. So there was always this conflict with the religious leaders of the day. Christ would be out there teaching and preaching. He would get questioned. He would get challenged. And every time he would do some sort of miraculous healing, there were people following up on that, trying to to scrutinize it and see reasons why it was wrong. When they went through the grain fields, his, his disciples were just grabbing enough grain to eat on the Sabbath. They were breaking the Sabbath. If, they were he, if he would heal somebody and say, lift up your blanket, lift up uh, and get up and walk, they'd say, oh, that's a, break, that's a break of God's law. This man has a demon. He's wrong. He should not be listened to or followed. Well, we find Joseph was hated by men. All of his brothers could not speak peaceably to him. They didn't want to talk to him. They hated him. Well, we see as we move on into Joseph's life, Joseph has a couple of dreams. Now, they reiterated a couple of times to just reinforce that they came from God and that they're authentic. So they're repeated. We see Jesus' ministry is validated by supernatural signs and authoritative preaching. So wherever he went, we see the Sermon on the Mount. People are like, wow, we've never heard anybody speak like this. And they said, hey, look, this guy speaks with authority. Nicodemus came to Jesus by night. John 3, verses 1 and 2. And he said, he came to Jesus uh, by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God. For no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. And as Joseph is recounting his dreams, probably naively, the the brethren were getting furious about this. And Jacob, the second one, he's like, really? Your mom and I are going to bow down to you? But in the back of his mind, it says, Jacob thought about it. He pondered on these things. He, wa- he, he went, wait a minute. God has spoken to me, maybe not in the exact way, but I have, I have uh, had encounters with the living God, and I know that something potentially could be going on here. He knew that there was more than uh, what met the eye. And then the, uh, Peter, as he's preaching on the day of Pentecost, says, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourself know. And so through the life and the death of Christ and the very infant time of the church, we see the signs, the miracles, the wonders. Well, what was the thing in Joseph's life that caught everybody's attention early on? These dreams, these visions, these things that God spoke to him directly. Next, Jesus came to his own and they received him not. Well, Joseph started speaking to his brothers. They rejected him. In John 1.11, 
speaking about Christ, John says, he came to his own and his own people did not receive him. And that ministry that Christ had was specifically to the Jews. He went and catered directly to their needs, their concerns, and in general, but at the end of the day, he was rejected. Well, thinking about for a moment what these dreams could have meant for Joseph and how maybe they personally encouraged him and edified him, um, just thinking internally how that would build a person up. Um, We see in the New Testament, the writer of Hebrews says that Jesus clung to the joy set before him. And so he says, looking unto Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. I can only imagine that for Joseph, these dreams were so real, so vivid. Of course, he had to speak about them. He probably couldn't contain himself. But what does that do for a person when you've gone through something like that? It's life-changing. And so I would imagine that these dreams in the future, as he's rejected and as he goes through tough times, they kind of hold his attention and it Makes, it just makes his relationship with God that much more firm. We know the end of the story, so we know that Joseph never wandered. He didn't quit. He didn't give up. He's really a, a testimony to personal grit and stick right? Where he didn't give up in jail. Uh, whatever they threw at him, he didn't lie down. He just kept going. Well, something had to... F- to fuel him through those tough times. Going through prison has to be a miserable experience. Being sold as a slave into a country you've never been, and perhaps I think he probably changed hands a few times, was probably rough. Until he ended up in a decent household with Potiphar where he's treated pretty well, uh, all of that had to be horrible. Well, what keeps a person? It's the way God speaks to us in the past. And so... We had that joy that was set before him. Well, we continue on and we see that it's time now for Joseph to go on a little bit of a journey. And Jacob sends him out and he is going to find his brothers who are tending to the flocks. Now, they're a long ways off, probably 70 miles away. And we see Jesus in the New Testament, was sent by the Father. In John chapter 8, verses 16 through 18, it says, Yet even if I do judge, my judgment is true. For it is not I alone who judge, but I and the Father who sent me. In your law it is written that the testimony of two people is true. I am the one who bears witness about myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness about me. Jesus is sent by the Father, Jacob sends his son Joseph. Jesus receives authority from the Father. And we see that in uh, Matthew chapter 28, it says, Jesus says, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me right before he ascends. And this is kind of where we think, okay, Joseph was commissioned by his father. He was sort of a monitor. He was gonna report in on what his brothers were doing. 
He had a certain amount of authority with that commission. And then we see Jesus was despised and rejected by men. This is, of course, a very famous one from the Old Testament. In Isaiah 53, 3, he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, as one from whom men hide their faces, and he was despised, and we esteemed him not. We also see that Jesus was led like a lamb to the slaughter. In Isaiah 53, 7, he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. And Joseph, if you think about it, he had gone a long way. All he was really going to do is check in on his brothers. He had no malicious intent. But as soon as they see him coming, they already conspired to kill him. And, of course, there was some back and forth and some dialogue, and they looked for a little bit of a softer way to get rid of this problem. And this is where it gets really interesting Jesus is sold for 30 pieces of silver by a man named Judas, and by this means became their Lord and Master. Well, who is the brother that came up with the bright idea to sell Joseph? Judas. That's not a coincidence. And so uh, we know that Judas came in and said, what we, I, I can turn him over to you. What will you give me for that? And of course, they gave him some silver. And, you know, it's really not by happenstance. I think God knows what he's doing. When um, this, this link is met, you certainly don't have to make too much out of it, but I think it's powerful in and of itself um, that uh, the brother Judas says, hey, look, let's just get rid of them and we'll sell them for some silver. Well, we see that Jesus' suffering is divinely ordained by the will of God we know that he is what the Old Testament and Isaiah beautifully portrayed. He's the suffering servant. We find this in Isaiah chapters 52 and chapters 53, which hopefully you're familiar with and I'd encourage you to read. We read it in Psalm 22. The whole chapter of Psalm is dedicated to the suffering of Christ. And we see that this is... The, this is the one thing that many folks looking at Christ could not, they could not digest this. A suffering servant was not what they wanted, not what they expected. How do we apply this to our own life? Joseph had a miserable experience. He was betrayed by the capricious sins and just kind of the vindictiveness of his brothers. And I know that in our lives, we probably have things that we can, we can relate to. But we all suffer in one form or fashion. And God uses that suffering. And that's really the most powerful part of this whole thing. The, one of the biggest questions that people have when they talk about Christianity and God, why does God allow so much suffering? And we don't want to give a simple answer because a simple answer is not, it's a very, it's a, it's a sore subject and it's something people should be asking about. But God uses our suffering and we see in the case of Christ, we see in the case of Joseph, it was necessary. It was preordained for the greater good. 
And sometimes we have to take that same mindset in our life. Some suffering seems gratuitous. It doesn't make sense. We don't understand why we're suffering. Well, I think Jesus knew why he was suffering, but I don't think Joseph knew why he was suffering. And here's a guy that basically endured all of it, and years later, it wasn't until 13, 14 years later that he finally was elevated and relieved of some of this. But it was a lot of roller coaster and up and down, and much like your life and mine. So we see that Jesus' suffering is divinely ordained by the will of God. Next, we see that Jesus' crucifixion is absolutely necessary to redeem men. And of course, uh, there's Matthew 26, 52 through 56, Luke 24, 44 through 47. Uh, Basically, that latter one is where Jesus is, is explaining the suffering of Christ on the road to Emmaus. These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. And it's one of those harsh realities of life that sin costs somebody something. The good news for you and the good news for me is somebody already paid that debt. And then when Joseph finally reveals himself, as Brett talked about last week, you know that he could have been mad as Hades. He could have gone off on these guys. He really had justification to be angry. But what does he say? God meant it for good. You meant it for evil. God meant it for good. That's how he resolves this whole thing. Short, sweet, succinct. It resolves it. It makes it make sense. And sometimes you and I have to do the exact same thing. We have to take a whole lot of suffering and things that don't make sense and realize that um, in God's hands, it's resolved. Well, for us, the sin problem, the death problem, the sickness problem that we have, the, the, all of the things that the world's going through right now that we're witness to, God has neatly resolved it in the crucifixion of Christ. And if we can accept the gospel, if we can accept the good news, if we can receive the kingdom of God, now all of a sudden, all of these things, they're still real. All of them, they, they impact us powerfully. But we see that because Christ died and it was necessary, we have a hope. We have something that we can look forward to. All right. I was going to... I was going to just touch on real quick um, chapter 38 where there's a bit of an interlude in, in Joseph's life. I kind of think this is neat because it talks about Judah and Tamar. It's kind of a sad, sordid uh, story. So I won't go into the details because I know that Brett has already walked you through this. But the one thing that I find is really uh, unique and distinctive about this part of the story is in Matthew 1, verses 1 through 3, who do you think's in Christ's genealogy? Judah and Tamar. And I don't know how it happened, but they're in there. And what that means is that 
You cannot thwart God when his plan is set. Judah was not a very godly person. He was pretty much, I don't know what you, there's a lot of choice words for for men like him. He was not upright. He was not following the Lord. In fact, when he found out uh, about Tamar, he was willing to burn her at the stake, which is kind of, this is sad and it's ugly. But when you look at how God uh, worked through this, you just, you can't go up against God. He has control over all things and that encourages me. Well, we come to the point where Joseph is in prison and we see that Jesus was humbled before he was exalted. Jesus was humble before he was exalted. And of course, our Lord taught in Matthew 23, 12, whoever exalts himself will be humbled and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. And we understand the suffering of Christ. We know that he made himself a man. He, made, he was subjected to some awful things uh, as he was executed. But we know ultimately he was raised up and he's sitting at the right hand of the Father in heaven. Well, Joseph himself was humbled. We know his story. He was in prison. And not only was he in, in prison, he got kind of a teaser where he was... Um, talking about some dreams and trans, translating them, uh, interpreting them to a couple of folks there. And he's like, don't forget about me. <laughs> Please don't forget about me when you go. Because one of them was, re- was uh, reinstalled into his former position. So all of that had to be terribly humiliating for Joseph. Um, and yet we see Jesus had unwavering obedience to God, even when it hurt. In Matthew 26, in the Garden of Gethsemane, verses 38 and 39, he says, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And we know, he said, My father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Joseph had sort of the same track in his mind. He didn't give up. And so we find that when God was ready finally to release him, it just sort of happened. And he was ready for it. He wasn't in the frame set of, you know, God doesn't love me and my life stinks and all that. He wasn't feeling sorry for himself. And so he was being obedient as he could uh, given the circumstances. Well, we see that Jesus was crucified between thieves. One perishes, one lives, and one asks to be remembered by Christ. Remember the story when Jesus was on the cross. We had one kind of reviling him. We had one who said, remember me. And he said, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Joseph, it was a little bit of a different twist. But it seems kind of the same where uh, the chief butler... And uh, one of, and the cook there are both in jail. Joseph's translating their dreams. One was executed because it was found out that he was doing something bad with, the, with, the, uh, with Pharaoh's food. And the other was restored. And you look at that parallel. It's like, wow. How did God weave that in there? And yet he did. 
we see that Jesus is exalted and coronated king. And so we find in Revelation 19, 16, on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And this goes into all bow the knee before Jesus. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow in heaven and on earth or under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Philippians 2, 9 through 11. As soon as Pharaoh had his dream explained to him, he was instantly convinced that Joseph was a man who he needed. And he installed him as second command. What was one of the first things he did? He gets his chariot and he marches him out in the streets and everybody bowed before Joseph. This is not something that is typical. You, you don't really see prisoners elevated to this type of, of uh, position in any society. But honestly, when you look at how amazing this is and really how unlikely it is, we see that God just has a unique way of, of uh, bringing the, the gospel to us. Christ himself, when we think about his exaltation, his coronation, in our mind's eye, we see him sitting on the throne of David. And we see that through faith because we can't see him physically. But Jesus said, blessed are those who have not seen me, yet they believe. Some of these disciples who walked with him for a while, said, I'm not going to believe it unless I see it. Thankfully for us, thankfully for you, if you have faith, you've got as much of an advantage as if you walked with Christ in the flesh. He is King of Kings. He is Lord of Lords. And he is exalted. And all will bow the knee before Jesus. It will happen. And I hope you do it now, sooner than later. Well, we see Jesus is the mediator between God and man in 1 Timothy 2.5. For there is one God, there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. If you wanted food, if you wanted anything, Pharaoh said, go to Joseph. Joseph was the mediator. In order to get to Pharaoh, you had to go through Joseph. That's just the way it worked. And so this unique relationship, I think, stands out. Uh, we find that as... Joseph is elevated, and now his brothers come up looking for food. And this is where I kind of started off with my study years ago. I was reading a devotional um, that Spurgeon had wrote about there is corn in Egypt. Corn is, was necessary for life, for sus sustenance, but really it can be spiritual sustenance. And so we get this kind of link between the corn or the grain in the Old Testament and the spiritual sustenance that Christ gives us now. And they come up. We know that Joseph hid himself from his brothers, did not reveal himself, talked through an interpreter, but when he spoke to them, he spoke to them roughly. Um, Jesus, in conjunction with the Father, with us, chastens us and brings us to repentance. And so we saw through the, the previous few chapters that, you know, Joseph was testing these men. He was working to try to extract from them, have they changed? Are they different? Are they 
the men that I remember them as, or have they changed? And I think that we see there are some definite changes. These men were honest in the sense that they were just coming up to look for food and take care of their families. They did not offer a full confession until it was, in fact, they didn't even offer a full confession. When it was finally extracted, the whole storyline about Joseph was, he is not. He's not alive. He's dead. So they didn't really confess themselves or their sins before the Lord. But what Joseph was ultimately able to detect is these men had changed. And the reason why he knew they had changed is they were willing to put their neck on the line for each other. And it was something that he did not expect. It was an emotional thing for him. He did not foresee it. But once he saw that, he knew that he could finally divulge himself. And so we see in Hebrews 12, verses 5 through 8, And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not lightly disregard the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him, for the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. I didn't walk into the church, you know, on a red carpet, and I'm sure you didn't either. Some of you may have been brought up in the church, and good for you. I think that's probably a good way to come in and get a good foundation. I had no foundation, but I came in kicking and screaming, like many people talk about. And the reason why is my human nature just did not want to conform. I did not want to believe. I did not want to bow the knee. I thought I was a good enough person, and I thought I was spiritual enough. What I knew about God was good enough. And I remember being presented in church. I was going to a church and the gospel was being preached and I was being challenged to bow the knee and I did. I finally relented and realized unless I bow the knee to Christ, get on my face and repent before him, I have no chance to be accepted before God. Well, God managed to do it. But it wasn't because he gave me an invitation and I just walked up and took it. Typically, it comes through hard times and a lot of resistance. We, uh, we also see next, Jesus offers the corn of salvation without price. He offers the corn of salvation without price. Uh, and I'm going to try to move quickly here as we're starting to wind this down. I find it very uh, interesting that Joseph decided to return the money into these men's sacks. And then when they admitted, you know, hey, somebody must have made a mistake. He said, no, I had your money. Don't worry about that. We see in Matthew 11, verses 28 through 30, Jesus says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. It's a free gift. And there are so many other verses we could quote. But the gift of God is free. It costs you nothing. And there's nothing you could do to earn it. There's nothing I could do to earn it. So Jesus offers the corn of salvation without price. Next, we see Joseph... 
He finally divulges his identity. And it's almost like he came back from the dead. And caught these men so off guard. And I would say that when Christ came back. And the disciples start to pull all this together. This is what he said. This is what he promised. This is what he was preaching. And all of a sudden it congealed. Can you imagine somebody coming back from the dead? For real, for real. Not just a story. Like you and I, we haven't experienced that really. Um, But this thing for Joseph's brethren must have filled them with dread and terror at first. It's a co-mingling of dread, terror. When we were talking about this in our life group, Danny said, we're all going to (laughs) die. You know, these guys must have been shocked. They're like, oh, snap. This is Joseph. The last thing I said and did to Joseph was terrible. And yet, as things started to settle down, And he started to speak with them, and he's weeping. They realized there's a certain amount of joy and happiness from being saved. Can you imagine now, these men, they're all in a land that's full of famine. Their families are suffering. They're running out of food. And to go to the shopping mart in Egypt is not down the corner. It's weeks away. And so it's rough. But now they're entered into, Joseph is like, I run this place. By the way, you're welcome here. Bring your whole family. That kind of relief, that kind of a blessing for a family must have just, it was life altering. So you have this, ooh, we're sinners and we really did a bad thing on the one hand. And yet we have joy and peace and a guy that's going to care for us and take care of us and be merciful to us. Isn't that what we get with Christ? At first, we might be afraid of God. And when we come to him and he soothes us and comforts us and gives us all the reasons why he wants to welcome us into his family, it just becomes something that now we're in the family and it's kind of like the mafia. Once you're in, you can't get out. <laughs> you know, So it's, you're taken care of, you're blessed, All right, so Joseph divulges his identity. Jesus came back from the dead. Um, We see now in the latter part of uh, chapter 45 and where we are today, chapter 46, Jesus prepares for us a home or a mansion in heaven. Joseph had invited his family. He'd prepared the way. He gave them some choice land in Goshen. And said, you can dwell here. This is where you can have a place to live. Jesus said in John 14, verses 2 and 3, In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you that I go to, uh, or would I have told you that I go prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again, and I will take take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. So there you have it. It's not the exact end of the story with Joseph and Jacob. We have a few more chapters to make our way through. Um, In fact, all the way up to chapter 50, we see 
um, Joseph's bones are being brought out of Egypt. So there's, there's some more content to go through. But I can't emphasize to you enough the, the, the foreshadowing in jo- Joseph's life is exactly what we find in Christ and his ministry. Much different time, much smaller scale, a different part of God's plan, but yet it's all one contiguous plan, and he's been on it for a long time. And so for us today, we know that God has a plan for the church. Jesus has prepared a home for us. It's not here. And I would say that we enjoy the fat of the land here. Most of us are relatively comfortable and well taken care of. But this is not our home. We have a mediator between God and man. That is the man Christ Jesus. And I hope that you see a lot of that in these texts. I appreciate you guys uh, bearing with me. We'll uh, we'll close it out. Um, I'll have the band come up and I'll close this in prayer. And as you guys make your way up, we can have a reflection on on the service. There's communion that's provided over here to my right and to your left. Um, If you want to pray on your own, you're more than welcome. If you want to pray with someone in the back, there'll be somebody there if you make your way back there. And so we're going to enter into at least a couple of songs of worship as we close out our service today. Thank you.